Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, listeners. My name is Leah Lepkin, and I am a Master of Environmental Management candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm here today with Perespen Stoknes, who recently published What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming Toward a New Psychology of Climate Action. Perespen Stoknes is a psychologist, economist, and entrepreneur. He is a senior lecturer at the Norwegian Business School in Oslo. Mr. Stoknes, I am pleased to have you in the studio today and ask you a few questions about your new book. So what motivated you to write this book? Who do you think should read it? You know, the question that uh, really drives me is um, whether humans are capable of uh, aligning with nature in a long-term way or whether we are inevitably short-term. Um, some people argue that um, both in um, the climate and uh, and also in uh, the way we you know run our economy, we're uh, always uh, short-term and destined in a way to bring down the planet with us because we are so short-term. I, I tend to disagree with that, and my book is an attempt to answer that question. Um, what would really make us uh, behave on an everyday basis uh, towards more the long-term? And the second part of your question has to do with, um, I think this book would be particularly useful to climate scientists who are kind of fed up with the public not understanding what their facts and the science are, uh, are telling. Because, you know, to them it's so clear and they just can't get it why the public uh, refuses to, to understand the most simple facts. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I think also activists that have been working on this for quite some time um, have uh, a little burnout or are confused about why uh, isn't the messaging working. Um, and thirdly, I think uh, communicators that have responsibility to uh, try to bridge science into the public. So science communicators in particular, but really any communicator uh, expert uh, that in an organization that tries to uh, address these issues would have uh, a good use of uh, reading the book. Uh, maybe also um, public in general who are um, a bit, uh, shall we say, bewildered by all this climate thing. Why are there so much argument? Why is it such a polarizing issue? Uh, and um, what, uh, what, what, why are we so slow to respond if it's uh, so urgent, as the scientists say? Mm -hmm. So uh, on that vein, at the start of your book, you lay out uh, this very interesting sort of fundamental difference between your viewpoint and that of your close colleague, Jorgen Randers. Would you describe what that difference is? Um, Jorgen Randers was one of the co-authors of The Limits to Growth that came out back in the 1972. Now, that's more than 40 years. And um, he's been, as he said, trying to change the world for 40 years. And uh, I have failed and I'm depressed. <laughs> uh, so uh, he has kind of lost hope and his conclusion is that people are fundamentally short-term uh, in the way we make our uh, economic uh, decisions, everyday decisions, and we're also short-term in our democracy, which typically never thinks more than two to four years ahead. And thirdly, we're short-term at 
in terms of capitalism, which always discounts the future into a, a net present value and doesn't really care about what's more than 10 years out. So all this kind of dooms us to a short-termism that will um, make our societies too slow in responding to uh, the climate issue. And um, I want to answer that challenge. Uh, I think uh, his argument is a very good one, but uh, it's a bit too depressing for my nature probably. Also, I have a more optimistic and positive view of human nature. And um, uh, what I've really done is to, to build the case for why that isn't so. Um, so what the, the book is really a long answer to the question, under what conditions do humans act and think for the long term? Because it's quite unique to our culture, this. Most first nations, most first people have lived in a way that's much more long-term than us. So I think it's a combination of psychology and culture, and I lay out, lay out those uh, differences uh, during the chapters in the book. In, in your book, you talk about the value of diversification of opinion. Why do you think this is important to a dialogue on climate? You know, uh, I'm a skeptic. Um, I'm a climate skeptic. Not in the sense that the media usually uses that label, but in a deep, uh, so we say, philosophy of science way. Skepticism is the core of science. And scientists, good scientists, are always uh, skeptics. So uh, I love the pluralistic thinking. I love uh, ideas, um, kind of... Uh, co-mingling or co-creating and branching out uh, new new views. Um, so I'm against any, I would say, monopolization of the way of thinking. Uh, and we do have tendencies to that uh, in terms of a strong consensus uh, in some people engendering a sense of fundamentalism. This has to be right. Uh, and of course, uh, there's lots of truth and lots of facts, and I don't, you know, in any way doubt the main findings of climate science as such. I just want to rule out that uh, nobody really knows enough to be, um, uh, sorry for the word, cocksure uh, pessimist. Mm. I mean, there are limits to our knowledge, and we have been pessimists before, and, and sometimes things go way better than we are able to think. Just... One example, um, back in 1980, uh, during the height of the Cold War, uh, some of the best thinkers in the world gathered uh, in Washington to do a workshop on the future of um, uh, international politics towards the next 20 years. And all these bright brain, high intelligence, high fact people could not come up with a single scenario in which uh, atomic weapons, nuclear weapons, were not used. So it was all d different variations on how you would bomb uh, or where you would bomb and how the, that would unfold. But the idea that people would just, or our, our global society would simply leave nuclear weapons by the year 2000 was way outside their mindset. And in this way too, I think um, I always hold the option that we open that we will be able to solve the climate problem and, and this is where uh, I like scenario thinking because it really engages us with uncertainty and in a constructive way. It's not that we don't act because we're uncertain, it's the other way around. We have to act now because the future is uncertain and that's only possible if you have a plural mindset. And you state that we already have the technology that we need for a low emission society. 
why do you think we already have the technological solutions that we need and that the problems to climate action lie elsewhere? Well, uh, I think uh, we already have the technology and solutions because uh, they work. They, they are fine today. Best available technology um, would uh, slash emissions everywhere and we could easily um, uh, generate all the power we need by renewables um, uh, within a few decades, if we wanted to. So the problem lies, as you say, elsewhere. It, it has to do with our mode of our modern mode of decision making. So what I'm really studying is um, what are the conditions and characteristics of our decision making um, and how can we employ the technology in a much more uh, constructive way. We need both a motivation, a capability and also a trigger to start making um, decisions in a new way. And these are the, the how, how to get there are the strategies or the solutions that I'm pointing out, which is a kind of new ecology of mind, if you will. And what is the psychological climate paradox that you talk about at length in your book? Um, back in 1989, um, almost seven out of 10 people were very concerned about, were concerned or very concerned about um, climate change. Um, and since then, we've had five IPCC reports and uh, around uh, 30,000 whatever climate science articles or published um, pieces that document how urgent and serious and man-made uh, this is. Uh, and what's the effect of this massive amount of information and all the uh, you know, all the science, sciences, uh, academies of sciences in the world have come to the same conclusion? And the effect on the public is negative. So over these 25 years, uh, the more certainty of the science and the more facts, the less concern in developed rich countries. And that's exactly the opposite you would expect from a rational point of view. So my book is really about answering why is that? How come that after 25 years of a massive information uh, campaign, uh, people are less concerned than they were 25 years ago? And we have also had uh, George Marshall in this very studio to talk about his book, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. Can you talk about any differences or additions that your book has to Mr. Marshall's book? First, I think Marshall's book is, is great. I really enjoyed reading it uh, and, uh, and um, I recommend it to anybody interested in this topic. Um, the differences are more like we have different voices. We cover some of the same ground, but I have my take on it. And so, so to sum it up, the main is that I condense um, this massive amount of psychological and social sociological research into, let's say, five main barriers that maintain this, the climate paradox that makes us want to disbelieve uh, climate change. While he has like 40 chapters where he explores different um, sub, sub say, pictures or bits in the puzzle. Um, so it's a pedagogical simplification, if you will, to make it more um, usable for the general public. Secondly, uh, after establishing these barriers, I link them to the um, 
leading-edge solutions as they are emerging from social science research. So through making the barriers into key success criteria, I couple the solutions very closely to the barriers. And, and George doesn't do that in his book. And thirdly, a little bit more than him, I'd say I deepen also the, the uh, questions into, so we say, existential domains. I, I wonder, like, um, this, I have this part on being. Uh, what does the climate disruptions actually mean for who we are as humans and how do we relate to the air, to the wind? Uh, and what does this mean for our, shall we say, meaning of life, a feeling of uh, connectedness to, to our surroundings? And so I think I dwell a bit more on that than, uh, than George does. You see an opportunity for growing bottom-up support for stronger measures at cultural and national levels. Why is this the basis for your book, and what would this look like? Um, when people, at least some academics, hear about you know, climate psychology, um, they react a bit negatively because they think, um, well, now this guy Stockness is out to uh, individualize the climate problem and uh, make uh, a social, cultural issue into something that is um, uh, building uh, individual guilt or should be sold on a kind of consumer one-by-one um, -one basis. But... This is a misunderstanding. Uh, I don't see climate psychology as um, solving the climate through individual action. It's much more an issue of how we build bottom-up support for more ambitious climate policy um, than... I mean, if we all start to recycle our shopping bags and... Um, uh, drive a little less and have a meat-free, meatless Monday. Um, this is all good, uh, but it doesn't solve the climate problem, and everybody knows that. Uh, the thing is that these is these actions have another value, which is maybe even more important than their direct contributions on reductions of CO2 emissions, and that is that they build um, the social networks needed to get um, to get a. a mo um, majority or uh, momentum into supporting ambitious climate policies. And psychology can play a big role in this, as long with psychoanalysis, because um, something is keeping us back. If we really understood and took to heart that my child or our children, when they grow up, we probably live in a world warmer than it's been in the last three million years then the, the the kind of the magnitude of that fact starts to resonate through you and and it becomes um highly uh, salient highly existentially meaningful uh, but very few people actually do that and in order for more people to grasp the depth of this issue we need to look at the psychological um mechanisms that keep, uh, keep us back. And this is what the book does. It really um, opens up um, new approaches so we stop banging our heads into those um, barriers that keep us from engaging with the issue. Mm. And that's the role of climate psychology to, shall we say, liberate people from 
these barriers so we can act meaningfully together with others in a social context and thus building bottom-up public support for climate policy. So just to state the obvious, the solution to climate change is, is quite easy. It's structural and it's economical. We put a price on carbon and we regulate um, those excessive emissions we have in a predictable um, long-term fashion. Uh, so the main question is, why haven't we done so if the answer to, or the sol solution to the climate problem is so obvious? And I call that the, the governance trap because um, politicians are really waiting for voter support for the climate issue. Uh, what they see is that if they go for the, um, uh, the climate issue, they lose voter support. And uh, the public is really waiting for the politicians to go uh, in front because if this really was important, then somebody would do something with it. So we have this chicken and egg, chicken and uh, egg situation where um, politicians are waiting for voters and voters are waiting for politicians. And climate psychology is really about how we break th that uh, vicious circle. Mm. Fascinating. And um, what would you say is your favorite story? that you told in the book or, or example that you gave? Oh, thanks for that question. So I love stories. And uh, I think my favorite story is the one where I really was astonished by the wizardry of uh, the air itself um, because I was out in um, the, the Sarek wilderness area in northern Sweden and um, walking with my friend and brother uh, and we were had like a week where it was mostly it was August, mostly sleet and uh, gray weather. And um, we went for wonderful trips. But, you know, can't we have just at least a glimpse of the sun? And then um, we crossed uh, a glacier and took off our climb, our um, yeah, um, um, glacier equipment and went, went climbing up a ridge. Um, slowly slowly but you know i didn't want to go all the way up because what's the point of just moving around in this gray porridge of a fog and seeing nothing but my brother he's a utter peak maniac so he kind of kept me going and uh, finally when we had no idea how far we'd gone because we couldn't see much we just this black uh, wet uh, stone shoulder we were climbing up uh, and, and then suddenly there was a little lightning of above our heads so it wasn't just heavy gray and then a few more meters later, we just popped up above the clouds and there was no more wind, no more fog and rain. It was just incredibly bright blue sky and we were surfing, as it were, on this kind of shark fin that was the top of this Sarek mountain and everywhere around us there were white waves of clouds. We could even see how they were... Um, uh, flowing over the other peak tops because they didn't rise quite through and it was so warm the, the warm stone and the lichen up there was kind of smelling that had been in the sun all day and we could have to strip off everything and the other huge mountains were kind of magicked away uh, so we were left in this um, incredibly space that the air through its um, wizardry created and this, I call this how it's the, the air always is whirling. It's bringing forth a world. And to me, that resonated so deeply that, you know, I've, I've um, come to understand how uh, anytime, anywhere, everywhere, the air is creating our world. 
yet we forget that because it's usually just invisible background to us. Uh, but the actual creative capacity of the air to sustain us and, and bring forth these worlds that our bodies are in um, is an amazing uh, realization. And I knew that intellectually, of course, but in this experience, it was so powerfully embodied. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful story. Thank you. Uh, so you've worked f as a scenario planning consultant for large corporations and government for many years. How did this inform and guide your research and writing for the book? Through scenarios, I've had uncertainty as my main topic for my professional life through many years, more than uh, more than uh, uh, 15 years. Um, <clears throat> and when IPCC come out with scenarios, uh, to me, this is kind of second nature. And I try to um, live through or think through what these scenarios actually mean in terms of policy today. So to me, writing this book is a natural extension of my work in scenarios in the sense that um, it gives us better resiliency and uh, flexibility for the long-term decisions we have to make today based on our uncertain futures. To me, acting in the face of uncertainty uh, is the only way to really uh, behave for the long term. And this is a discipline, uh, I would say, uh, an, uh, an art or uh, even a science of scenario thinking that has an, uh, a kind of rigor to it, an academic tradition. Um, so when some people say, no, we shouldn't take action on climate because it's so uncertain, uh, that's the completely wrong logic in terms of what I've been teaching as a scenario planner uh, my entire days. When somebody is successful as a company or as a person, it is because they take a risk, they do something that uh, other people don't, and because they had this capacity to envision this future, they are hugely rewarded, while the other people who didn't understand that type of future um, just simply become mediocre, average. So being able to act on uncertainty is a key for uh, having success. Great. And in your book, you say that climate scientists could partner with psychologists, sociologists, artists, and social scientists to communicate the science through visualization, frames, and stories that foster action rather than despair and denial. Can you give an example of what this would look or sound like? Oh, big question. I've kind of filled up my book with these kind of examples. <laughs> Let me give you just a few of my favorites. Um, I think, for instance, the company Opower that do help utilities and consumers with reducing uh, their power consumption through uh, social norms and messaging is a prime example of this. It's actually just social psychology uh, studies that has been commercialized and now recently had an IPO of a billion dollars or whatever it was. So um, they do exactly this. They take the, the uh, experiments and the studies of social psychologists and then bring it to action with the public uh, and thereby communicating the importance of climate science. So it's a little bit 
other way maybe that than most people think. It's not that we take action if we have a right attitude. It's more like if we behave and are aware of our actions, for instance, with with power uh, conservation, then this issue becomes important. Uh, so it's more psychological than logical, if you will. Mm. Other examples are, for instance, the Green Sports Alliance. I really think what they're doing is great because by greening uh, the sport events and by the sports stars, it helps spread the science through action among messengers that their peers uh, really trust. So you reach much fur further than a classic uh, scientist voice would do. Also, uh, one study we did was in terms of how to achieve more long-term um, uh, consumption or purchasing was by um, in a Norwegian electricity retailer um, or a household appliances retailer. We replaced the price tags with the life, cy life cycle cost tag. So people could see what this would cost over seven to ten years and not just what it would cost today and that was the salient feature and this way people started acting more long term they bought what was more expensive high quality more energy efficient appliance today and then they would have the benefits later because we have had redesigned the choice architecture it was easier for them to do uh, a long-term choice because the label was focusing on the long term and not the short term mm -hmm. Great example. Thank you. For our listeners at home, can you describe the five new main strategies for climate communication that you lay out uh, very clearly in your book? Sure. Um, for sake of simplicity, I've given them all names that start with an S. So it's using um, making it social first, using the power of social networks. Um, and the second is to make it uh, simple to act climate friendly. The third is to use supportive framings. And the fourth is uh, better storytelling. And the fifth is uh, signals. We need better feedback on whether we're doing enough or too little. Um, so if you want one sentence on each, I could say that by making it uh, social and putting it into the context of social networks, we counter the barriers of distance and uh, dissonance because people like to imitate others. And if there's somebody that I aspire to be like, and he's pro-snow, pro-climate, pro-green sports, then I want to be that too. And secondly, today it's in terms of behavior, it's kind of hard to be green in the sense that if you go into a supermarket and there are 80 different types of products, which should I do? And, and I don't have time to spend you know, on endless um, analyzing these, these ales of, of products. So we have to make it easy. Uh, the good news is that we can shift from, as we are today, doing mindlessly and destructive uh, choices into doing mindlessly and constructive or right choices. And that's what nudging uh, us it can do, making it simple. And thirdly, um, we need more supportive frames that don't backfire emotionally on the issues, such as the doom frame does, and the cost frame and the sacrifice that we've been using traditionally. Much better frames are in terms of using the health frame. So climate is about health. And climate is also an insurance against risk. Um, and it's like a little bit like a pension plan for yourself. Um, and uh, thirdly, climate 
uh, adaption is really a big business opportunity. Uh, there's so much money to be made there and better products, smarter products. And uh, fourthly, um, the new stories would include stories such as um, the happiness story, uh, the, the more ethical or the greening of uh, religion story, uh, the, the rewilding story, and finally also the, the great transition story, how we are going to, uh, we have a dream of where we want to go. And um, we, we can see that a sustainable society is also a much better society in so many ways, and both for, both for commerce and for individual living. Finally, I would like to point out that the climate discourse has lacked um, response indicators. We've had lots of indicators of how the, the, the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere, like 400 ppm and uh, uh, the sea level rise in inches per decade or the forcings in watt per meters. But these signals don't mean anything at all to ordinary people. So what we need is signals or feedback on how people are shifting. For instance, um, this month, how many people biked into New Haven compared to one year ago? Or what a proportion of... of um, commutes are done by public transportation compared to Boston. Uh, you know, these are signals that would resonate with how people live. And also businesses need better signals to know when they are doing um, real uh, green growth versus when they are just greenwashing. Uh, so when are they doing their fair share, so to speak? And when are they doing too little? That's very unclear today. It's very hard for a corporation to know whether it's uh, a part of the problem or part of the solution. But luckily, there are good metrics, good signals on this, and we just have to employ them. Mm-hmm. After describing the climate paradox at length, you suggest replacing it with something you call the despair paradox. What is this and why? Again, when we really take in what the magnitude of climate change and, and the losses uh, we have of ecosystems, forests, and um, beautiful glaciers, and this magnificent, biologically rich wor- world we inherited. There's, there's this deep grief or this despair that sets in. What on earth are we doing? And many people feel that, no, we couldn't become too pessimistic. And also, you know, I also speak against using the doom frame too much when communicating. So they fear kind of really going into the negative or the darkness or the depression of it. And uh, I think that's kind of counterproductive. So on a personal level, I recommend people to let that despair in or that that grief flow through you, but maybe without identifying fully with it, because there is this deep melancholy, this deep sorrow in, in our hearts and in our bodies and in our world as to what we're actually doing. And the despair paradox is that if we really let, let ourselves mourn or grieve this thing, is that we also feel as much more new connectedness to what's still here and a joy of being alive and the vibrancy of the air. So in a way, th- the despair paradox says that the more and the deeper you take your despair, uh, the more you feel the, how wonderful life is, and the deeper, your more authentic your joy becomes. So it's more like not being afraid of the uh, the grief would uh, let you um, also be filled with more enthusiasm for actually doing something. That's great. And how has this process of researching for and writing this book changed or challenged you personally? By going into this book, I came to 
realign myself and rediscover um, the vibrancy of air and the intimacy of air. How, you know, air envelops us and holds us. Each hair on our head and each finger, each leg, each time you move, the air moves with you. And when we breathe, we are also being breathed by this large um, being of clarity and light and movement. And, and to me, writing this book was a way to deepen my existential engagement uh, with the world. And I think it, it changed me in the sense that like a lot of meditative practices around focus on breathing, you know, focus on your breathing, all that. But have we ever focused on the air uh, in the same way? And can can we also include the perspective that as we breathe, we are also being breathed and thus participating in something that's much bigger for us? And it's like maybe I could say that the, the air is what is most fundamentally repressed in our society because it is the invisible in essence, so to speak, but it makes this invisible medium makes everything visible and we're only able to re relate to other people or to trees or nature because the air is opening up that field for us. So I think the book helped me explore this that I was kind of vaguely aware of before and now it's a reality I live every day and I'm I'm truly grateful for that. I, I feel great gratitude to the air for sustaining me every second, every minute and it's such a more relaxed, less stressful, um, uh, mindful way of being each time I come to remember that and the book has helped me solidify that. So to wrap up, would you tell us what you're working on next? Ah, yes, I feel I've kind of enough just um, getting this book out. But you are right. Of course, there is uh, a next project lurking behind this horizon. And uh, that is, um, you know, I'm both a psychologist and an economist. And this book has been mostly from the psychology point of view, looking towards climate economics and climate politics. And the next book that I've started to think about is... I'll turn that around and I write about this great um, transition or the smart growth or the new way because um, unless we achieve this structural change in our economy um, through the public pressure and public awareness of the climate issue, we will never be able to solve it in a good way either. So even if it's simple in principle to solve the climate problem by slapping a carbon price on it uh, much deeper structural changes are needed and the good news is that these are all smart fun opportunities and we can create a lot more value while using a lot less of resources and wasting way less and i think to those that are not psychologists or interested in the air as such, but just out to make a living or money for it, uh, that book will speak to those audiences uh, as well. Great. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Love being here with you, Leah. Great. Thanks. Good questions.